We acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which we work and live, the people of the Gubby Gubby Nation, and recognise their continuing connection to land, water and community. We pay respects to the Elders past, present and emerging. Welcome to the Take A Seat Podcast. This podcast brings awareness to disability sports and supports. We are talking to experts and athletes with a disability from around the world. Boys, time for the uh, sponsorship read. Let's get into it. Of course, we want a website, uh, some details about their programs, and maybe where people can find them on the socials. Yeah, love it. Well, we'll start off with a website. So www.suncoastspinners.com.au Good. is where you can find all of their upcoming information about any events, tournaments, local programs, uh, where to be and what time. Uh, Spot on, Jimmy. Great. Over to you, Cam. Definitely Instagram, Facebook, YouTube. We don't know about TikTok. We're, no, we might sure. have to get them so. onto TikTok, definitely. They're not a very big social media. Well, we know that they have a link tree which has all of them listed on it. So jump on their link tree and you'll be able to find it from suncoastspinners.com.au. And who are we thanking for the money? Uh, I want to be a, throw a big shout out to Bridie Keen uh, and the rest of the board for supporting us and backing us on this venture. You guys are doing really well at this now. You're getting real pro, to be honest. <laughs> we'll we'll cut this up and it will sound beautiful when we get it to air. Love it. Let's get into it. Cameron, episode 19. We are back. We are in the studio. Who have we got on? Mate, I have pulled a rabbit out of the hat. I have done some Harry Potter magic today. Mining Granger magic, like out of the handbag kind of thing? Yeah, like out of, out of there. It's uh, I should go to Hogwarts for this one. Hogwarts. All yeah, right. well, yeah, yeah. Five points to Gryffindor. Who have we got on? <laughs> so we have the CEO from 2015 to 2021 of Paralympics Australia, Lynn Anderson. Lynn Anderson, the CEO from... 2015 to 2021. So recently resigned and she is now with Sport Commission? Yeah, she's the Sports Australia Commission, yeah. Sport Australia Commission. Well, we didn't do our introduction properly this week. We got talking with Lynn and it was an absolutely fantastic conversation. So we're going to let it blend in and we hope you enjoy the conversation. How do more people with a without a disability get involved in the Paralympics or be CEO or be involved in in the 2032 games and stuff yeah. in particular? Cam, Cam kind of let you let that question down easy. We'll get into. I'll, I'll ask it now and I'll let you <laughs> okay. think about it. Because, we, so essentially, you were lucky that that was going to be the big opportunity that I did want to talk about. Good, sensational. We're that's perfect. Because uh, are you aware of Michael Frogley from Canada, wheelchair basketball? Not overly. Okay, um, so he's a superstar is he? No, so I should know him. He's well in, uh, the, in the wheelchair basketball world. He's he's a bit of a big figure. Yeah, he was recently inducted into the Hall of Fame for wheelchair basketball Canada. But we had him. We um, the Sunco Spinners here on the Sunshine Coast, our sponsors of the episode uh, of of this podcast. They brought him over at uh, the Spinners Tournament that's hosted okay. in January, which is the largest wheelchair basketball tournament in Australia. And so they brought him over for a conference. And at that conference, he stated a very out front political view that he believes that ABs should participate in the Paralympics in wheelchair basketball. So I wanted to, get, oh. I wanted to, I wanted to ask you on, on your thoughts of that. Uh, wheelchair basketball is always giving us challenges. <laughs> <laughs> um, pushing the boundary. Having said that, we love it too because um, over the last probably 20 years, we've really got lots of medals in the sport. So we love it. Um, look, I think, and it's interesting, um, I don't know if you saw yesterday, there's a bit of a, bit of a um, what's the word, a, a drama or an issue around um, the Premier had only had the Olympics in her title, not Paralympics. Oh, yes, yes. And the Paralympics Australia Athletic Athletes Commission, which quite frankly is the most astounding group of young people I've met, I thought handled it really, really well and really respectfully. And just before I came on, I was actually reading on Twitter, some um, in LinkedIn, sorry, some of the comments, and there's a beautiful Paralympian, Mon Murphy, Monique Murphy. Uh, she's a, a Victorian, but Queensland let her in. And she's up there now, and her response was really, really good. Where you know she said, the Olympic Games and Paralympic Games are both for elite athletes from around the world in their various disciplines. And I used to often say, and you guys will understand this, when I came into the world, to me, the Olympics and Paralympics were rugby league and rugby union. You know, and until now, near the twain shall meet. When you let the elite athletes have their opportunity to shine. So I think in terms of the Paralympic, it will probably be a Paralympic Sunday because all the Paralympians, they're proud Paralympians. You know, they don't like being called Olympians because in particular, Mon Murphy is a fantastic example. She said, I thought I'd be an Olympian one day. I was plan- uh, training for that till I had my accident. So if anything, you know, she doesn't want to be reminded of that. She wants to do her best and become a Paralympian. But 
having said that, I, you know, the, we definitely know, and you guys are a classic example of that, of, of mixing ABs and people with disability at a grassroots, at a community level, even at playing in your sport at an international level, is brilliant on all inclusion fronts. Yeah. I think so I just a, think the Paralympians will stay standalone as yeah, they should. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. We, we've definitely had that conversation previous with our mindset, and I think I spoke to you at the Sports Tech World Conference uh, or series about it where – James and I, when we first come into this, was, well, let's let's combine them together. And we've had a few guests come on and say, well, you know, if you combine the two together, then the Paralympics will potentially lose a bit of that, be shadowed by the Olympics. But also the whole atmosphere around it and the community and everything that the Paralympics is based off is significantly more than what actually the Paralympics uh, events and the racing and the uh, sports are. There's so much more to it. The more that we've kind of got into this and the more that we've learned about it, we've realized that, yeah, there isn't just a, okay, let's have one games and combine them all together. It's very much a, that's the Olympics and that's the Paralympics and they are different in their own rights and they, they have every mm. right to be different. Who was it? Was it Nikki? Nikki Ayers? Or, no, it was Sarah, Sarah Rose that, yeah. we, that we spoke to. I've <laughs> met Sarah. She's great. Sensational. Um, yeah. She was great to have yeah. on board, honestly. And and she gave us yeah. this great description of what the Paralympics was versus the Olympics. And that's when, for me, I was like, Cam, on the, Emily, on the episode, we were like, well, for me, that's just push the push the ball down the other side of the court for me. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm with you, Sarah, you know, like – that was for me the, the the point where I began to understand these different points of views uh, as as to what the Paralympics was versus the uh, versus the Olympics. At the end of the day, they're elite athletes, and that is their moment to shine on the world stage. And like I love what the Com Games do in really bringing inclusion inclusion and equity in. But just think about it: if you try to combine them, first of all, we're already ruling most of the cities out in the world to be able to afford to have. Olympic Games. If you then add a Paralympic Games, because you've got more sports, more you've got to build more hotels, more infrastructure. A city will have wide elephants everywhere. Or the alternatives, you cut it down and you have less um, elite athletes in both the Olympics and Paralympics able to, to shine on the stage every four years. So, I think those two. We, we had a great line when we did the 2032 bid, and I was really proud to be a part of that. It was a fantastic experience for me. But it was like one um, event. I think Brisbane 2032 is one event, two games. And everything to me is side by side. So if you ever say the Olympic Games, I expect you to say Paralympic Games straight after. Okay? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's a, a, even at the Sports Tech World Series conference that we met at, they were very much on everything is together. They're, when you mention one, you mention the other. When you do this, Absolutely. we mention this and we do that. And they're really, for Brisbane 2032, is going to change the game with what they were talking about there is the stadiums and the infrastructure of Brisbane and the underground train stations. And they're not just setting it up for the games where there are white elephants left or all over the Brisbane. They're actually no. changing it so that they're going to be used for the future. It's going to be a, a, a change of Brisbane itself and the way that it runs, definitely. Yeah, it will be. And not only that, everyone will be able to use it. And that's our big thing. I think, James, you said earlier that you've, you've as the Paralympic Games have grown in stature and, and in the last, I think, you know, probably since Sydney 2000 was a real game changer. Um, and I'm really, I wasn't involved then, but I'm really proud that the movement recognises that they actually had the same organising committee looking after it was brought together and given, you know, a bit more um, credibility, I suppose. London 2012 took it to another level, the Paralympic yeah. Games. They had a fantastic sponsor in Channel 4 and they just promoted it. The hell out of it and did a fantastic job. I want 2032 to be the one that gets it back to the best games in Australia, Paralympic Games. And I think what we know is that yes, it's about the elite athletes and they will strut their stuff and they'll, we're looking at that we're, you know, finding with the current um, gold medalist now in the pathway. But the one thing that these games can do, especially in the Paralympic world, is we will use the games and those athletes to shine a light on all the other issues that we know still play out in the disability world, like the fact that there's significant inequity of, of jobs and employment for people with disability. So while we'll be celebrating and cheering everything when we see them win gold in Brisbane, between now and the Games, I think it's, you know, it's pressing on all of us to basically say, well, okay, using those Games, how do we have the conversations that we need to have? Do you have any relation with anyone with a disability, a family member, a friend? No, and th- and that was, you know, to my, my great shame, I'll be honest and put it out there, that... Um, one of my really good friends, Lois Appleby, was actually CEO of Sydney 2000. But we were in Melbourne at the time, of course, because 2000, we, we moved in, we lived in Melbourne 98 to 2002. 
and we had tickets for the event, so we drove all the way up here. I wish Lois the belt best, and I got back in the car and drove home. So I had never had any involvement in, even though the stats say one in five, you know, 20% of people have a disability, I hadn't um, till I got this opportunity at the Paralympic Games. So as I said, I had all the reasons. That I, one of the reasons I think I wasn't involved is in my previous world in sport and sponsorship and marketing was looking more at the really professional codes that had big sponsorship dollars and also had signage and exposure rights because that's what we were using as the the, um, the tactics. Paralympics or Olympics even didn't have that. So I had never been in the world of the Olympics and I'd never been in the Paralympics world. So before I lose this question, I, you brought up before that there's more, more problems. Uh, essentially, you were saying, uh, if I'm reading between what you were saying correctly, there's more problems that if we if we increase the player base in the Olympics and the Paralympics or combining them together, we create greater problems in terms of creating infrastructure and building infrastructure around the areas, which was something that I had never really considered. Like I just yeah, figured that... I'd never thought of that either. Yeah, but it's funny because all the conversations that I've been involved with here on the Sunshine Coast, particularly like I think they call them the, the strike force teams and the all those teams that are yeah. talking together from the community point of view about what yeah. the games mean for the local area and they're talking about leaving mm-hmm. behind a legacy for the future. And for me, it's yeah. all, it, all the conversations that have had are about building infrastructure that will leave, building an infrastructure and a game yeah. that will lead, leave a legacy that will then leave these pieces of inter- infrastructure that create a more inclusive community. Absolutely, so, and that, that's exactly it. Are you able to expand on like the on, on the issues of building infrastructure or, or if you had any uh, involvement in that within I the Olympics? Only because of, you know, again, back in my old world of sports sponsorships, we, we start to follow the world of sport business, I suppose you'd call it. And I think it's become pretty clear that over the last, you know, 20 years or so, that holding, hosting a game in your own backyard is expensive. And it, there's been mistakes made left, right, and centre by a whole lot of people. So the IOC, to their credit, actually recognised that and have um, issued what they call a new norm. And Brisbane was the first bidding cycle to be under the new laws of the new norm. And I really enjoyed it. I, I found that they, they looked at how it was in the past. They recognised that if they didn't change, it literally would just go around London, Australia, America probably, and in, in, in Japan maybe, the companies, countries that could afford it. But it would rule out the whole idea of getting more universality and, and more countries involved. So this new norm principles came in and they've been really true to it. They, they looked at, you know, what do we need to do to get it right? And one thing that they espoused, and I have to say they did follow through completely on, was putting the athlete at the centre of it. What is the athlete experience like? Because these athletes work really hard. They get one shot every four years. You know, it's about engaging the athletes. And like anything, people who have the lived experience or your customers are going to give you the best information and best advice. So that's one issue. They put the athletes there. The other one was that they knew the cost was spiralling and there was a real negativity. Well, like we had, um, I think it was Chicago and one of the German countries, they actually had a, um, a social movement that actually said no gain and, and no and was successful in getting councils, cities who were bidding to not bid because taxpayers no didn't want to put the bill. Yeah. yeah, so they've actually looked at all the challenges and said this is the way we would do it and, and I think it played out really well. So, for example... Every, we Brisbane had to look at where is the existing infrastructure without building new infrastructure. And if we need new infrastructure, then what's the um, business case for doing it? So that's why they're looking at, you know, upgrading the GABA or whatever it might be, dropping in, you know, um, temporary pitches in some areas. Um, so it was a really good thing that it addressed problems that have happened in the past, but at the same time, I think, pulled in the better aspects to involve the athletes, you know, look at the um, uh, where the movement will be. And it was, it's been a really good process. I think Brisbane will be outstanding. Something that uh, obviously, like you took your role in in 2015 and uh, finished up at the end of 2021, and I arguably would say that the two Paralympics that you were involved with were the two hardest Paralympics to ever happen, <laughs> Rio and Tokyo. Rio, because of anybody that hasn't watched the actual documentary that's gone around with Rising Phoenix or um, with that, with how it was going on about, Rio almost never happened. There was a big financial issue with uh, everything there. And then, of course, Tokyo with the COVID pandemic. Being the CEO of both of those, and and I know that uh, we spoke about it, where you said that you you finished the uh, opening ceremony, I want to say, and you and your husband went back to the hotel room and uh, you broke down crying because it was just such an emotional, you put absolutely everything in it to get the athletes there. How was it being the CEO of of those two particular events and exactly what we're talking about, the infrastructure and the movement and building and stuff. 
what went wrong with both of those? Obviously, the pandemic's different, but Rio in particular. Okay, Rio was. Can I say from the start that I've you know I've, had, I've been fortunate to have a really wonderful life where I've you know, seen some really good highs. Yeah, from my involvement in Footy World and in my original sports sponsorship business, which was a great. Great run, great fun. But the being CEO of the Paralympic Games is the thing I am absolutely most proud of and have, has given me just, just an unmitigated joy. Yes, they were hard. Rio was really interesting. Rio was hard in so much as um, I'd actually got the job. I'd, I'd, because my sponsorship business had, had been a beast and, and it, you know, I got to a point where I was really worn out, as most people do, and you don't see the signs. So I, I took some time out and um, I, I think I was eight months into gardening leave, as they call it. <laughs> And I got the call that asked me, would I be interested in it? And I remember thinking, gosh, I know nothing about this world. Um, why do they want me? But I also had seen that at that time, I thought I thought the business of sport, having been in it for 20 years, I thought there were two areas that were really going to come to the fore and needed more work. One was governance and integrity. And hello, this is happening everywhere. So that was one. The other one was the diversity inclusion play. And when I was at the Bulldogs, I was their marketing manager straight out of uni, and I was really proud of work we did around gender and um, multicultural work. So really, for me, I thought I was being super inclusive. But as I said earlier, I had nothing, no idea about the world of disability. And when I thought about it for like 10 seconds, I thought, oh my God, this is an amazing opportunity for me to really have um, an impact in an area of inclusion that I hadn't been involved in. When I went into the job, um, Paralympics Australia was in a, a tough time financially. Um, they, they got because they weren't getting the level of exposure, etc. the cost of competing in sport were going up. So it was really a tough time. So I, I sort of had to come in and manage the financial side. But at the same time, you know, pick a lot of the people up in the business because we'd been, you know, the usual restructures and redundancies that had happened before I got there. So I was more concerned internally, I think, with us because it was only 12 months out from a game. And I was really fortunate. I had a brilliant, and she's still there, actually. Kate McLaughlin is the, uh, the chef de mission. And I knew I could just, she reported to me, but I could just leave her and know that she would get things done in terms of getting the team as ready as we could, given our our financial challenges. Um, the Sports Commission were brilliant. They came to the party with a loan so that the, the athletes wouldn't miss out because it certainly wasn't their fault. But in terms of the challenges with Rio, when I watched Rising Phoenix, I learned stuff. So the IPC had, had absorbed a lot of that pain and that was the, the president, Sir Philip Craven, who, be, who is wheelchair basketball and became a great mate. Chris and I actually went and stayed with him and his wife and we all think our grandkids are better than the others and <laughs> we had a really good, really beautiful time with them. But he, I think he and Jarvi Gonzalez, who was the CEO at the time, and Craig Spence, the marketing communications director, they basically took it on their shoulders in many ways to, to work through. So... We knew there were challenges, and but we I didn't know the depth of the challenge till, as I said, afterwards. Um, and obviously they got through it and we went to the Games, and yes, we had to cut back left, right and centre and everything, but you just do it. I think the world of Paralympics are really used to just reacting quickly and being resilient, and you know, because all of us put the athletes first. And this, as I said, for some athletes, it's their only chance to represent their country, and we're not going to let anything like that um, get in the way if possible. So it was actually, the story you mentioned earlier, there was another bit further to that. It wasn't just emotional exhaustion, but it was um, after watching the first five or six days, um, Cameron, of, of sports, keeping in mind we'd never been involved with power sports, we were just overcome with the sheer capability and capacity of the human spirit, you know, to do things that you just did not think were possible. And then somewhere along the line, I remember when it was, it was actually, I think, in um, the swimming pool. And it was that night, what, something happened that night, a couple of weeks saw one of our beautiful wheelchair swimmers, Rachel, um, she's a Queenslander too, uh, Brisbaneite. She was her first game, she won the 50 metres in an extraordinary swim, like the, the courage and, and tenacity that she had to win it. And after that game, I was giving you a card, the event, I was giving her a card, and I thought, hang on, these are bloody good athletes. So we went from being amazed at their, you know, capacity to actually um, think they're such good athletes. And by the end of it, we're cheering as hard as anything. It was beautiful, absolutely beautiful. And then uh, obviously with Tokyo, the world's still in repair from what's going on there and <laughs> and everything but you did mention about the athletes not being allowed to go to the dining hall um, and <laughs> yeah. the effort that went in behind the scenes from the australian committee to making food for the athletes so that they didn't go to the communal areas and potentially get COVID or any other sickness that was going to rule them out from competing in their event you want to explain that uh, again yeah. to, so that james can hear it and everyone else absolutely so when 
when we had the decision that the games were still going to go ahead, but they were postponed, it, it took a while for like, the International Paralympic Committee was working with the World Health Organization, and then every country, as we know, New Zealand, Australia, shut down lockdown. Every country was different. So for a long while, we didn't even know what the protocols were going to be. So we made the decision early on that we have to make our own protocols, and we're actually going to be as tight and tough as it can be, because the last thing we wanted was to take an athlete over there, have done the five years of hard work or more, and then get not be able to get to the starting line because they'd contracted COVID or because a teammate had and the whole place was in shutdown. So we had to work really, really hard to just do the, the, the planning and strategy, strategizing as to where do we think they're most likely to get um, um, a, catch an infection. And we were really lucky we had, I uh, got introduced to David Heslop, fantastic um, bloke who's a specialist with Dr. David. He's the one that set up the NRL's protocols. Yeah. And so I was able to get him in and he advised. So we had two brilliant female doctors that were helping advise us along the way. And we worked together with David Heslop to make sure that we had all the protocols right. And one of them included that the, the dining hall was an obvious one. You know, that it, it, you mix it. The hardest part for us there is that the athletes love that. That's where they get to meet their, their friends that they don't see all along. They're, they're deep competitors, but the one that they just love catching up with at the games. So it was tough. We had to really work through that with the athletes and say, this is why we're doing it. It is for your own good, but we accept that it is taking away one of the real enjoyments of the games, which is you meeting all your friends. And when the games are over, you you can socialise. And then we had to work through what that meant. So literally, we were bringing food in every day. That was a challenge in itself. Had to go through the Japanese system to get food into the village in the COVID protocols. But yeah, it was. we literally had all of our team staff from... Doctors, physios, me, CEO, chef de mission. At various stages, you see us all in the common kitchen. Sleeves rolled up, we were making sandwiches or wraps. Do you want sweet chili sauce? No, I want mustard. You know, <laughs> we were literally putting it all together for everyone. And as much as I'm proud of the fact that nobody got COVID, I'm really proud nobody got food poisoning. Yeah, that that wouldn't have been real nice. Uh, food poisoning uh, on the start line or anything. Yeah, definitely. No. <laughs> Uh, it's a different games, but that way. Yeah, I was going to say, outside of that, obviously, what other things that, that, you know, people may not know about being the CEO of Paralympics Australia, like what type of roles do you have to do as, as that person? First thing is have really good people around you, and I did. I, I inherited a brilliant team. I brought a, a few extras in. I think what I was able to bring to the, to the Paralympics world is, Everyone in the, my world and staff had fantastic Paralympics knowledge. They didn't need me to tell them any more about that. They knew that. What I did bring to them was, a, I, I always put the, the business of sports sort of lens. And so I was able to see that from a marketing, with my marketing hat on, I thought, oh, my God, this, these stories are brilliant. We just have to get them heard. And that, that's it. When you're a minnow sport, you're not getting the airtime. And so because of my previous background, I'd worked with all the broadcasters at agencies, government departments. So... That became my mission, which was literally a stakeholder engagement sort of um, role. And I had a, a fantastic man, Dr. Paul Oliver, put on as my, my general manager of stakeholder engagement. And we literally, our, our job from day one was to bring more awareness, more money into the whole sector. Not just Paralympics Australia. We wanted, um, we wanted our NSOs, national sporting organisations who have para components, so Swimming Australia or Athletics Australia, as well as wheelchair rugby. We wanted them getting more money at the grassroots level. So we were on a really big advocacy role and we were really fortunate. The, um, we got some good government grants. We had a great relationship with Channel 7 who just embraced us. And I think Tokyo especially showed that. So we are able to bring a whole lot of those things together, I think, and hopefully, you know, get the athletes starting to get a bit more of the exposure that they, they so much deserve. I want to ask you, this might be a bit of a touchy subject for some, but um, I have a really strong opinion against this and it's probably negative to the question, but what's your opinion on having national sporting bodies or national sporting organisations that govern all para and wheelchair-based sports rather than, than rather than them following through in the traditional sporting NSOs? So, for example, when wheelchair sport, AFL following under AFL. Yeah. Our, one of the theories and philosophies that I learned very quickly when I came into that I think is a spouse from International Paralympics down is that sport knows sport best. So if you're talking about athletes, athletics, you've got athletics, athletes running 400 metres, you know, it's, yes, you might have a prosthetic or a wheelchair, but the, the principle is of the sport is still the same. So in theory, we 
post, I think it was post Sydney, where that uh, mainstreaming was the, the philosophy that they used. And the explanation was that mainstreaming is what needs to happen. Mainstreaming has probably just been done to varying degrees of success. I still believe it's absolutely the right way to go, but we need to ensure that there is equity of um, support. And, you know, that isn't always that easy to, to get. For example, you know, sometimes saying swimming. And that gorgeous lady I was talking about earlier, Rachel, she needs a swimming pool that has a hoist with it. Mm. You know, so all of a sudden you've got, you know, where's the nearest one to support her? But certainly a lot of our sports have embraced mainstreaming and are really, you know, um, going further with it. And I um, currently sit on the Sports Commission and that's one of my, my absolute focuses is to make sure that we do get all our athletes being supported equitably, whether they're, you know, able-bodied or, or para. You have your separate sports, like your wheelchair rugby's that stand alone, um, and we're going to the process now of setting that up properly. Uh, when I say Russo, Paralympics Australia was when I was there. So some of the unique sports, your goal balls, your botches, will be standalone, but in the main, where it is a, a mainstream sport, a, a, you know, same as a sport, as in athletics or whatever. And a lot of the, um, the not all of them, sorry, and some international federations do look after both. Athletics don't and swimming don't, so that's interesting. But I think they're going through those paths now to ensure that we do. So there's two things there. One, you've got to commit to it and have you know the right support. And the second one is to make sure that those resources are shared appropriately. Yeah, because hmm. I always just find it weird that like you have – FIBA, like the Wheelchair Basketball Federation, in yeah. the FIWBA, and then you have FIBA. Yeah. Obviously, they're two yeah. standalone organisations, but why is it that when they fill down, and I play basketball a lot, that's why I sort of talk about basketball, yeah. but um, why, yeah. why yeah. are they not then transpired to be filling down all the way down to grassroots? So, for example, when you come back to that idea of having a hoist and likewise having wheelchairs available yeah. to play the sport, where is your closest club that provides that? But I always, I would always imagine or think that that it would work best that if, for example, we have the the Clippers, uh, the Budgeon, or the USC Rip City Basketball Club, and you have the USC Rip City Wheelchair Basketball Club. Um, yep. Or, for example, you have the Caloundra Sharks swimming team, and you have the USC Rip yep. City swimming team. Uh, what are they called? Spartans? USC Spartans? If, if the yep. Spartans have a hoist yep. or an accessible swimming pool, then you're going to go to them. But it comes under that same, like, I would imagine, yep. I would imagine that it works better if they follow the a similar streamline going up. I actually, as long as there's enough resources, yeah, you know, that it always comes down to. Especially, I think the facilities are really hard. Like we know the building codes of mandating change, but change is, is expensive. Um, could they do more in terms of mandating or you know in implementing? Yes, but at the same time, I do understand that there'll be challenges. But I mean, basketball's a classic Australia. Basketball Australia runs the wheelchairs, the the rollers, and the gliders, but the international one doesn't. So. Mm-hmm. There's, it's a, um, a beast of a world in terms of um, sport in mainstream sport, let alone with the um, parasite. But I think as the Paralympics are really growing in, in stature and respect and reputation, I'd like to think that you know the able-bodied sports that haven't currently got as well actually say, you know what, there's something of value here. Because I think, yeah, I think wheelchair AFL are doing it really well. They're they get yeah. behind the wheelchair game fantastically. They are, heaps of they support are. at it. The Take a Seat podcast is in your ears thanks to the Suncoast Spinners. The Suncoast Spinners are a wheelchair-based sporting club. They run social inclusion programs, including but not limited to basketball and rugby. If you want to get involved with the Suncoast Spinners programs, you can just rock up at Mergen, Morayfield and Sippy Downs on Wednesdays, Fridays and Saturdays or contact them on Instagram, Facebook or their website www.suncoastspinners.com.au. The Suncoast Spinners programs are for people of all ages and abilities. They're looking for players, officials and volunteers to help with all of their programs. So make sure you check out the Suncoast Spinners on Facebook, Instagram or on their website again, www.suncoastspinners.com.au. I also look at it like I know of another sport at the moment where uh, there's talk about having a referees course and the abled version of the game has referees course all the way through to international level. Talking the, rugby league. Hey. You're talking rugby league? I am actually, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to be diplomatic here. Alrighty, so so now that everyone knows, uh, rugby league has has a, a referees course all the way through to international level. What is being said right now is that they're trying to get a wheelchair rugby league's a certificate or referees course and the course had previously been done but it's uh, recently been taken away what has been said currently is that nrl will not put on a wheelchair-based referees course right now because the fundamentals of the sport of refereeing at rugby league are the same so everyone has to do the level one referees course for able abled league 
um, to be able to referee wheelchair league. Where I don't like the fact of that is that, one, the abled league is played on a field. It is mod footy. They have tag footy. They also have a few other variations of the game within that module, but they will not put a wheelchair element into the module um, right now. And they also don't have wheelchairs in it. The fact that the referee referees the game from the side of the court as opposed to the middle of the field like it does in in the abled version. There is a different way of kicking the, the ball. There is tags as opposed to tackles. There is a lot of different variations within the wheelchair version of the game, even though it is based off the same game. From your side of things and what you're talking um, as well, how do you see that possibility of, of changing that in the future? Because obviously it's a bit of a sticky point. It is, and, and it, it sounds things I don't know enough about the referee's course, so I, I'm commenting very loosely from yeah, the yeah, sideline. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm kind of here. <laughs> yeah, no, that's all right. I, in theory, I could see that if, if they were trying to think about and put resources into it, you know, if they do an over or overarching umbrella sort of uh, course because, you know, there's values, et cetera, that you all have to learn and be as a referee. I get there'd be, um, you know, consistent values, consistent teachings there. But it, uh, if they had a model so that you could actually have the rules and, and the different nuances around that, then maybe it could fit in as part. So, you know, if there's six subjects that you study, maybe it's one of those, I don't know. But uh, it's very, the good analogy I've got there is um, with coaching. And um, had a yeah had a great advisor who was also an employee of ours, um, Timmy Matthews. He's a Paralympian from '96 and 2000, and has worked in Paralympics Australia out of our Melbourne office since whenever he's <laughs> been. And he's great. He's just one of those guys that you know you you can go to him with a talent ID question, and he'll look at you. Um, James and say, what are you doing? You know, playing basketball. You actually should be on the river and paddling or something. Yeah. So he's just, we want to clone him and make sure we get all the talent ID done for the next generation. But he used to say to me that he felt that coaching should be. You need to the same things you need to be a coach of able bod in athletics. Say you need to be able to coach a um in in para sport as well. There's there's different nuances because you've got to understand. Um, you know, if you've got a prosthetic or they can't put their hand down and push off. But in in essence that the coaching, you know, the, the things that you need to be able to be a good coach are the same. 100%. So, it goes back to what yeah. you said before, like that umbrella overarching principles that will apply to uh, any any different sport, like how you how you approach to, yeah. uh, for example, teach uh, go through skill acquisition or break down a progressive yeah. skill in itself and pull it into its components and teach one piece at a time and allow them to piece it together and, and, and complete the activity yeah. in, its, in its entirety. It's really funny because QUT have just done a, a scholarship program and a number of the coaches from Sunco Spinners are going there and they're doing really well and they're enjoying it. But there was the guy that was running it. He has no, that what, what was told to me was that he has no experience in, in uh, wheelchair sports whatsoever. And he was totally against the idea of drills. And I get that. I get the idea that in coaching, you shouldn't be putting people through drills, right? And there's activities, there's modified games. There's a million different ways you can teach someone to do something without putting them through a drill. But they actually reached out to him and they, they are doing these like uh, mentor things. So they get like two hours a week. So between the number of coaches at the club that went to it, I think we've got four hours at Sunco Spinners technically. Okay. So we're going to capitalize on that. But they invited him and they were like, hey, mate, look, this is, this is how our program runs. It's just not going to work the way you want it to do it. So we want you to come down, watch it, watch watch the young fella coach, Jasha at the at the junior program, watch him, give him some critical feedback. It's going to be great. But what we want you to do is we want you to watch James, how he coaches the Wednesday night program. Because there's 20 people that might show up, but every week there's going to be 16 different people from the week prior. And there's going to be eight people, but those eight people or four people aren't going to be the same ones four weeks in a row, right? And there's mm. going to be different people at different school levels coming through. There's no way that we can do what you want to do from this coaching program in into the, the it's like a social program. So what's Paralympics Australia doing to promote sports and then find the next athletes for 2032? It's a combination of not just Paralympics Australia, um, and it's very much topical. I think I mentioned to you earlier that we have a complete, complex um, stakeholder map in the world of any sport, but especially uh, para sport. Um, so you've got Paralympics Australia, but then you've also got our Sport Australia and the AIS. And then you've got the other institutes of sports, the National Institute Network. They're all in every state. And then you have all your NSOs. So at the moment, um, through Sport Australia, on Sport Australia, so through the uh, AIS, we're actually doing some really good work involving all of those stakeholders and pulling together a national high performance plan. Sorry. And I, yeah. that is 
uh, national high performance plan. Yeah, sorry, I said I said athletes, but okay. I meant coaches. Oh, sorry. <laughs> oh, coaches. Well, coaches sorry. are actually so part of it. Yeah, so coaches that we just um, launched again it's with the sports commission launched a couple of really cool modules on sports uh, coaching, um, including some that start from the grassroots up. So that we're actually what we're trying to do is is get rid of you know we all know the negative coaching experience that has harmed kids along the way and and kicked them out of the game. So we've started at that level, turning it around and saying put the athlete or the ki- the kid the player at the centre of the coaching and make an enjoyable experience, etc. So through the Sports Commission, our role is to add capacity and expertise to the whole sector, whether it be from you know, grassroots rugby league clubs right up to a, a place like Paralympics Australia. The more we come together and map this high performance plan, which would include talent ID across athletes and coaches, which would include, you know, what's the latest research, what's the best um, technology that we should be using, wheelchair propulsion, what's the latest studies. So mm. we're trying to bring a really cool um, national uh, flavour to that, which hasn't really happened. 2032 is the North Star for all of that. And then what we will see is, I'm sure, all the various components that are coming out. Like QAS were fantastic. They were out of the box almost a minute after it was announced that we had Brisbane with their U for, 20, uh, U for 32 program where they've gone around the whole state. And it doesn't, it's targeting power athletes as well as athletes, but it's essentially who's the next um, athlete that's going to represent Australia in um, Brisbane. So mm. it, it has to happen now. Like 10 years is, is barely enough <laughs> across everyone. Um, but I think the more we come together as a sector and, and share best practice. So, again, at the AIS, we're doing some really cool work in terms of engineering, innovation, technology. Um, just for Tokyo Games, um, Maddie de Rosario, who's just a rock star, I love her bids, she did, you know, we had work that would help with her gloves. So, gloves, wheelchair dynamics, there's so many things in power sport in particular. The gloves were done on 3D printing and, and just put out. Like there's, there's just lots of really cool work happening, which is what we saw a bit of at the conference. Yeah. And I'm really happy that you, you spoke about Maddie because uh, I grew up with uh, Louise Savage, uh, knowing her, like, uh. Uh, like watching her on, on the stage and everything. And I've actually shown James uh, a photo where I was a young, inspiring sprinter and got to meet Louis Savage. Yeah. And I've got, I mean, I was really. Cameron, sprinting? <laughs> yeah. It's being so short. It's, it's, yes. Yeah, I know. I know. But uh, I've I'm got. This, going there. <laughs> <laughs> I, I got this photo. One of the photos is actually on a grass field, and we were up in Toowoomba, and uh, Louise actually pushed her wheelchair out onto the, the grass and made yeah. the event happen and was just an unbelievable person. And why I bring her and Maddie up is athletes with a disability that become coaches or people with a disability that want to become a para coach and the coaching pathways, which is what James has already spoken about. Mm-hmm. Wheelchair rugby in Canada. Every player that plays for Wheelchair Rugby Canada must go through the coaching course. Is that something that's possible that. here in Australia? If it's the way they want to go, I'm, I have no doubt that they would be doing it. I wasn't aware of that, actually. Funny, those two, those athletes, names you just said, I've just been in Melbourne. Dylan Alcott gets field access, has, has um, established a program. It's called WILD, Women in Leadership Development. And I was as a mentor to that program. And I've been with Paige Greco and, and Carol Cook the last few days, just trying to sort of bring them into the loop. So, look, I, I don't... And, and actually, Shay Graham was also on it. it was, he was our first female wheelchair rugby player. I'm really pleased to say there's now three going away tomorrow, including Ella Savaljack from yeah, um, yeah. Uh, Gold Coast. So in terms of that coach, I'm going to ask that question, mate, because I honestly don't know that. But I certainly think one thing I do know is that, again, through the Sports Commission, we're really trying to target athletes who are getting close or transitioning out with who are interested in coaching and, and give them, hopefully, opportunities to go through. So it's got to be in, in conjunction, obviously, with their sport. But we think there's like um, a huge opportunity there. I already know of a few athletes that I know are on the end of um, probably won't go to Paris if they do Paris be their own. But I think they're really keen, and, and we need to make sure now that those opportunities are there. They haven't been there in the past, particularly in para um, sports. I think, but we're really conscious now of opening them up. I also with Canada again, they have the sledge hockey, and they do this very yeah. similar type of program where uh, para athletes become coaches. And I was watching a particular uh, woman coach and she was doing an interview and what she said was it's great i can coach and i love it and whatever else but uh, they make accessibility for the the players but never for the coach 
the coach's box is always upstairs or it's yeah. always yeah. In a, on a lip or whatever else. And I can never get into the yeah. coach's box. So, yeah. you know, that, that was her biggest thing was, oh, yeah, we can, we can coach the people. We can get them to be referees. We can get them to be athletes and whatever else. Mm. But we're not ex- uh, thinking about the accessibility or the avenues to be able to get people to coach and be the same likewise experience as an abled coach. And that's something that James and I are really trying to hammer down is like, like for like, yeah, it's not going to be the exact same experience, but how do we make everything the like for like experience? Something that we got to ask at uh, Brisbane uh, for the Brisbane games at the conference as well was Corey, who was there with us and uh, part of episode five in our podcast. He says, you know, he wants to go to a stadium and watch in the front row and also take more than one companion to watch a sporting event with him. Yeah. But no sporting venue in Australia has the accessible front row experience for someone in a wheelchair or with a complex disability, um, which was yeah. very interesting when you tie that in with coaching and then accessibility and, and going forward for 2032. I think you've already touched on how different Brisbane's going to be. I mean, it's. I think it's, there's a, a concept called universal design that I had never heard of till I got into the Paralympics Australia world. And I just, you know, think I actually use it across my whole world now. I don't even just, I got it from facilities and infrastructure, but I actually say to, like, this week when we're talking about solving the challenges of people with disability having um, employment, I said, start at the very beginning thinking of it. Don't add it on as an ad hoc because, as you'll find now, you add on a, um accessible path to get into a stadium, but as my wheelchair friends tell me, that they end up wheeling an extra three k's just to get into the venue yeah, because they've got to go around and about and have the right slope. Yeah. <laughs> and then they so, don't have the key look, for the I door think, or something rather. No, it's just, it's going to take time, Sadie. But, but what I would say is when we're doing these rebuilds, infrastructure, fits news day, that's where, you know, if we get the universal design right, things like, and I hadn't even thought about that, you know, sitting in the front row and making the wheelchair um, accessible positions down there, that should not be hard to do at all. So it's a, there's a great... Um, Certainly, if you're um, Bridie Keen, have you spoken to her from USA? Yeah, <laughs> where uh, she, she's the yeah, president of the Sunco Spinners. She's um, a major sponsor ah, of this podcast. Of yeah, yeah. Oh, so we're hoping hoping Bridie. to get her on. I just, and Bondi. Uh, well, he's he's just flying out everywhere. You can't get the guy. Tomorrow, yeah. I can't even get him to <laughs> come he's to our a Raiders fan. A Raiders fan. He is. I actually ran into him <laughs> randomly when I was down in Sydney at a camp. Uh, we went to the Tigers Raiders yeah. game, and it, I was like, oh, "Is that Chris?" That's not Chris. There's no chance I'm running into Chris at a footy match in Sydney. To, oh, uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's Chris. Yep. <laughs> and Lisa Vargas Manley. So it's like the, the only one I, that, that I read, we had a few Jaden Troyer, um, he's our javelin thrower, and um, Scotty Reardon are both yeah. Bulldog fans. So oh, yeah. I, could, I, I, I bring them along. Reardo was interesting because when I first got the job, I remember thinking, God, the poor athletes, you know, the, the, the business is in a challenging place. Games are only a year out. They're thinking, who the hell is this woman? So I um I just put a letter out to all the athletes saying, look, I know you know, you know this is my background, this is how I am. And then at the end, I just put in P.S. Anyone who's a league, I'm um mad Bulldogs fans, but do have a soft spot for Storm. <laughs> Scotty Reardon's come back, and Scotty's come back and said, oh, Lynn, you might know my uncle, here, Steve, who plays Bulldogs. And I've just written back, Scotty, do I need no Steve? He lived with me for three years. I have stories. Oh, <laughs> oh <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so it's a, and what I found out later on that Steve Reardon had played a really wonderful role in, in assisting Scotty through the um the trauma and everything of the accident and probably one of my proudest moments was actually not at a Paralympic Games, it was at the London twenty seventeen World Championships and Rido had won in, in Rio but was really getting challenged and when I say challenged, a lot of um argy bargy off the, the track from a British competitor, Richard Whitehouse. Now, Richard is an above-knee double amputee and anyone who knows about the, the mechanics of that, but over the longer you go, the Oscar the story type, you know, prosthetics are going to, to win because they they potentially give you a longer a longer stride. Mm-hmm. So Rido had um <clears throat> not competed in the two hundred, was only going the hundred. It was a really pressure moment for him because it was in London, everyone was supporting the local guy as they should. But Rido won that day and I was at the the finish line with him and his beautiful fiance Vanessa, who's also now a proud Aussie Paralympian. And it was just a really special moment because he had no right to win that goal and he did. <laughs> and he was a Bulldogs man, so we did it all well. <laughs> Good on you. That's sensational. We, we've actually uh, we've been talking to Richard from uh, Britain as well, and he he said that he would be keen to get on the podcast. So we may even be able to get the flip side of mm. of that conversation Ooh. as well. 
could be very interesting. Be very careful, yes. He was, um, <laughs> he was after it. Just remind me of this little study one. Yes, we'll have to. We'll have to. <laughs> <laughs> is, there, is there something that people should know from, from your side of things as to Paralympics or going forward to 20, 2032? You know, what, is there something that yeah. you like want to share really or? share for our <laughs> listeners? I do believe that 2032 is a really unique and wonderful opportunity. Um, I think that the Paralympic movement in Australia over the last years has really got to a point now where we are getting some good recognition publicly. I mean, Tokyo was just amazing. You know, yes, sadly, you know, COVID lockdown um, was happening, but at the same time, it meant that we had great audiences, great interaction, and I think the Australian population got to see para athletes for their true expertise and certainly embrace them you know ever since then we've had everywhere I go people really want to talk about it so I think we're in a really nice place that way in terms of respecting us as as elite athletes what I'd like to see now is that and all the things you've talked about here James and Cameron you know we need to take we need to know that the opportunity is now it's not in 10 years time and yes we want to have the nice legacy for afterwards the legacy for me we keep talking 10 plus 10 this is a green and gold runway. We've got lots of events coming to Australia and not just the real um, major sporting events. Like last week I was in town, I sit on the Advisory Council for Sport and Integrity Australia and we had WADA, the World Anti-Doping Organisation, was in town for their Global Education Conference. That was a fantastic opportunity where, you know, we're leading the way with a lot of our education programs um, and all other countries from around the world, athletes from around the world, they were fantastic. The voice of the athlete is really powerful. So we're going to get opportunities where the world will be looking at Australia for both sport administration and sporting events. And we need to not only get our own pathways right with the coaching, with the talent ID, with the supporting resources, but we need to then take that broader. So like we know one of the um, uh, aims in Paralympics Australia, they ha- we have to submit our vision for 2032 for the Games. And we said, yes, we will do our best and hopefully top the podium like we did in Sydney when it's a home game. But at the same time, our aim is to use that runway to have half a million more people with a disability more active. Yeah. Now, we're not saying that they're all going to be Paralympians and they're all going to win gold medals, but guess what? If you show a bit of interest and you have some talent that you want to go, you could have that rare opportunity of being an Australian athlete competing for your country at your sport's highest event in your own backyard. Can you imagine just wheeling down the straight like Maddie de Rosario did, having a, a stadium full of people screaming at us? So there's that opportunity to use that to get more people focused on health outcomes there's an opportunity to have this conversation. As I said, the, the stats of people with disability and employment, they were telling me, have not improved for 28 years. We'll do something about that. That's just not good enough by a long way. The um, Queensland government, have they got a really good uh, disability um, action plan? Let's make sure that we're ticking all of those boxes because the conversations will now be had because more media opportunities will come up for our, our Paralympic athletes. So I think for all of us who are sports fans, it is a great opportunity to just embrace the chance to do more in our backyard. Volunteering has fallen off, obviously, in um, COVID times. And the Sports Commission, again, just launched a really good program trying to encourage more. We want to have an Aussie volunteer army like they did in Sydney. Remember, the Sydney Volleys still wear their shirts proudly. Well, let's replicate that for Brisbane. So there's so many things we can do that are for the benefit of all Australia, not just, as I said, winning medals, which we will do plenty of, I have no doubt. (laughs) <laughs> One thing you just said then, which I, I really love, and it goes back to the com- comment I made before, imagine Madden, Maddie uh, wheeling yeah. down that home straight and she looks up in the front row at the end of the f- uh, finish line and there is a front row of people in wheelchairs cheering her on oh, and, and welcoming, welcoming her home. And that's not just uh, spectators, that's people that are volunteers of the event or employees and things like it would just be amazing to have that. I do have one final question from what you just said. Cameron, can I just say you gave me goosebumps with that, (laughs) picturing that. No, I'm serious because I was there in in Tokyo when she won and so was Supercoach Lou and the athletic sports lady, Linda, we were there. And I didn't even realise she'd won. I still thought she was behind because we couldn't see, you know, how they come out of the arena (laughs) into it. And because there was no one there hardly, you didn't get a vibe of it. And as she'd come in, I think, oh, she's really good. And then someone said, no, she's she's in the front. (laughs) (laughs) And so when she crossed crossed that line, but that would be absolutely amazing. Yeah. We'll have to work on that. The one question I did get from what you just said, how can people with a disability – be employed 
in 2032 at the Paralympics or leading into it, getting those jobs and getting that employment rate better from now right through to those games? I would encourage everybody to apply. I think there's always a challenge where people are not necessarily putting their hands up, apply for these jobs because they need to be accessible. The 2032 employment will start ramping up, but not the, they're looking for CEO now, the few senior roles, but say four to five years out, they're really going to ramp up in terms of all the resources they need. And given the, the mandate that we have in terms of improving, you know, um, outcomes for people with a disability off the back of 2032, there definitely will be opportunities there. Volunteering will definitely be absolutely ramped up because we, we need an army of them. So in terms of employment, I would just really encourage people to, to be actively looking for those opportunities. And I think sometimes that's the hardest part. What makes people stand out on a resume for a Paralympics Australia employment perspective? The best person for the job. I would like to think that everybody looks at that, doesn't see anything other than capability, expertise and experience. And then we ask the question, do you have any needs in terms of coming into the office? And we went through that at Paralympics Australia. And sadly, we, when I got there, we did great stuff externally facing for our athletes. Um, but we had one person out of 25, 30 with a disability in the office. And then when I went through it, you know, we looked, we didn't even, even have a ramp at the front door. You know, we live, our offices at Lidcombe, Homebush, Sydney Olympic Park. It's bad enough for an able-bodied person to get there by train because you've got to change at Lidcombe and wait one, you know, to get what go one stop. So for a person with disability, we hadn't mapped the journey out. So we, we've gone on the front foot and actually we went to our athletes to try and encourage more as well. So I think, yeah, I'd like to think that that doesn't matter. Just at the forum, I said I've been to in um, in Melbourne with Dylan Alcott's group. There were a lot of really good recruitment companies there, including Randstad, I'll call them out, really actively pushing the um, the disability inclusion side. So I would like to think that other, um, off the back of the federal government's, you know, initiative from a few weeks ago on jobs, that I'd like to think that carries through. And, and recently we saw the announcement of um, the amazing Kurt Fernley as head of the NDIA. I'm, I'm really hopeful that the um, disability inequities will start to be addressed. I'm sure his, his involvement will, will do wonders, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you. He's amazing. Thank you so much for your time sharing with us, no Lynn. Uh, we really appreciate it. And can I finish it. by just saying I love what you two guys are doing. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> that you are absolutely passionate in this space at such a young age. And I really, you know, chat my hat off to you because it does need more more exposure to this world it does need we know it's wonderful we know it's fantastic we know it's underdone um but the more people we get out there um supporting it and as i said have you two young guys doing it that's awesome yeah for the two of us it's just about creating awareness and further opportunities thank Happy you about any time thank you thanks for listening to this episode We appreciate you rating and reviewing the podcast, but most importantly, sharing it with people you think it will impact the most. Before we go, again, a massive thanks to our sponsor, the Sunco Spinners. The Sunco Spinners are a social wheelchair-based sporting club. They operate multiple programs for people of all ages and abilities in basketball, rugby, and more. Follow the Sunco Spinners on Facebook, Instagram, and find out more about them at sunkospinners.com.au. 